I'm Stephanie. And I'm Rachel, and this is Neurodivergent Voices, the podcast amplifying the voices and lived experience of the neurodivergent community. We're licensed occupational therapists who specialize in the brain and are neurodivergent ourselves. Join us every so often in this podcast that is for you and by you, the neurodivergent community. If you're interested in learning more about neurodiversity and joining a vibrant community of neuroinclusive adults, head to our website, divergecommunity.com. Interested in an interview? Email divergecs at gmail.com to get it scheduled. Let's get to it. So do you want to kind of give a brief description of your name, where you're from, um, kind of give a little bio about yourself? Sure. Um, Hello, my name is Ilana, and I am in Portland, Oregon. I uh, have lived in a lot of places over the years, and this is where I'm living right now. Um, I also spent the last four years in New Zealand. I just got back a few months back. so that was a big stint of a broad being. And um, what were the other parts? Oh, the bio. Yeah. yeah. Um, I'm an OT by trade. Um, I have worked with kids with disabilities and no disabilities since I was like 15. So that's like 20 years now. And um, it's always been really clear to me that that is my line of work. Like since that first summer camp, it was like, straight shot this is for me um and in recent years i've thought career-wise i've been thinking more about how to like make sure that i can still do it and it's sustainable and doesn't lead to burnout because i've had a few burnout type episodes when it comes to like Mm -hmm. the way it is to practice ot um especially in the u.s so um i still care a lot about it but i'm thinking carefully and thoughtfully about how I want to be an OT. Mm, Yeah, I'm really excited to hear uh, about your experience in New Zealand and how it kind of contrasts because in our mind, we we kind of put New Zealand and Australia and and UK and like this, this pedestal of like, hey, this is this is goals for what OT could be like. Um, And I don't know, maybe those are maybe those are well founded and maybe not. So I'm excited to see your perspective living and breathing in both um but before we dive too much in i do want to give a chance for people who are just listening um to be able to kind of visualize what's going on here would you be able to provide a quick visual description of yourself sure um i'm a white female with uh dark eyes and dark hair that is currently in small braids that are unraveling and it's a bit frizzy at the top and I have a really dark purple maroon um, kind of colored shirt on and I'm just sitting here in my bed against Mm -hmm. the wall beautiful do I give a oh yeah for me yeah um right now Stephanie here I am wearing my wool green sweater that Rachel hates Oh, it's beautiful. I just can't touch it. Um, My hair is getting kind of an extra red tint lately because I can't dye it just yet. Um, I'm also white female. uh, Also wearing some extra baggy 
pants currently just to make it comfy. And me and Rachel are both in my kitchen currently. Yes. And mm -hmm. just wanted to show real quick who's up there too. We have her, her chickens who always make an appearance in our, our little videos there. <laughs> Don't know how that got started, but here we are. This one. <laughs> um. Yep. So Rachel, I'm sitting here. I'm in a black, what would you call this material? Velvety? Kind of a velvety, but not a bad velvet, just like a soft um, cropped sweater. And then I'm wearing these fun, I just want to show you this real quick because they were a great find recently. <laughs> fun little color block jeans. One is dark blue and one is light blue. Oh, yeah. Just, I don't know, just a little bit different. Nice. Exciting, little dopamine dressing. Mm -hmm. And I'm nice. um, wearing fun uh, sterling silver, kind of like weird, maybe they look almost like a pizza slice. <laughs> Um, but just some interesting earrings, and then my hair is up and clip as usual, mm -hmm. and I am sitting to Stephanie's left, mm -hmm. and here we are. Yeah. Wonderful. Do we want to yeah. talk about the questions first, or do we want to go right into a side topic about New Zealand? Let's do questions first. Okay. I wrote it down so I don't forget to ask you about okay. the differences between America and New Zealand. Okay. But, or else we won't ever get to any of the questions. I know. That's okay. true. Very true. <laughs> So um, can you share a little bit about what you do in your free time? What your favorite occupations are, if, if you will? Sure. Yes, I have always been a person who values their occupations. Um, and I think that being an OT helps me like view them as meaningful occupations and keep in the forefront, like, you know, making sure I get a bit of each. So um, social time, like with connecting with friends, preferably one-on-one, -on -one, um, maybe a smaller group, but generally not big loud groups or like late night parties. Um, uh, preferably outdoors, like taking a walk. Sometimes we'll cook together. Sometimes we'll like do a craft together. Um, so there's like, that is kind of my social thing. And sometimes that's met also by like a phone call or a video chat with somebody who's far away sure. and time outside is important to me mm -hmm. time spent in nature and like maybe hanging on trees or kind of like being near them mm -hmm. or being in a garden doing garden stuff um and moving my body in nature is even better but also I like to move my body indoors like climbing gym or weightlifting gym or mm -hmm. just um some contact improv or whatever is available. Yeah, so moving my body, social engagement, like home tending, I like to sweep sometimes. Yeah. Sweeping, keeping things tidy, yeah. keeping up with the laundry. I know I'm like going through the domains, but this is really how I yeah. see my life. You're a great and I like to do like self self-sufficient autonomy kind of things like cooking and baking and I like to not use recipes and just sort of like throw things in and unknown how they'll turn out but always eat them in the end um I took a few notes let's see if I missed anything oh yes my alone time is important um but it's also important to not like have too much of that at once or like in a long stretch and that is often spent on screens or reading or spoon carving I've been getting into last few months or yeah the cooking okay um, i've never heard of spoon carving oh yeah spoon carving? no oh. <laughs> i feel like it had some deep roots in ot stephanie 
like that was an early occupation. But anyway, like carving out of wood, like making a spoon with like, you know, tools out of wood. And I've love are are you familiar with the spoon theory? Yeah. Okay, so I just love kind of the metaphorical nature of that too. Like you are car you are getting your spoons back through literally carving spoons. I Ooh. Cool. Huh. I never made that connection, but I like it. <laughs> anyway, Thank you. Very cool. I know you briefly mentioned um, kind of being in this kind of realm or starting this kind of realm when you were 15. And um, yeah. But did you know, like, about OT when you were 15? Or how did you get into it? And what mm. would you like, consider your OT elevator speech? Yes. Um. My OT elevator speech about what is OT or how do I get into it? Or both. Uh, both. So both. Let's start yeah. with how you got into occupation. Okay. Um, yeah. My older sister was a camp counselor at the, um, like a local camp that had a kind of a special needs kids camp along with it. And she had a good experience. And so I just sort of being a fairly undifferentiated person thought I'll do what she did. And I went for it. And, um, I was 15 at the time and I had like a, a group of kids that were like 10 to 13. So very close in age to me. Um, and most of them were autistic at the time we were advised to say people with autism because yeah. that's how mm -hmm. the times were. Um, and I remember on the very first day that one of the kids who I felt very endeared to, and he was just sort of constantly he was constantly counting under his breath and muttering numbers. And I would say, what are you counting? And he would say, miles in, in gasoline, like gas miles, miles per gallon. Like he was really about gas stations and gas tanks. That was an interest of his. And then I remember that we had to sort of line up at the end of the day. And I was sort of like in a, in a line modeling that for the other kids. And he stood right in front of me, looked down and looked at me with a worried look and said, hey, my hips are wider than yours. <laughs> and I was just like floored by that comment. And I, and I was delighted by the honesty of it mm -hmm. and I'll never forget it. And then I kind of went into a, like, I need to go to the library and read all the psychology textbooks and read everything about autism and read like Lovas's like behaviorist model, because again, that was how it was in the, you know, what was it 20 years ago? Um, and read my older sister's abnormal psych textbook and so that's kind of how i i got into that and then you know all the part-time jobs i had throughout the rest of high school summers college afterwards were all like you know within the realm of um working with autistic people and um yeah i guess we can get into that also but you know at, at the time i did i was somebody who um you know given my level of like, you know, I had some experience, but I was nobody's like therapist at the time. So I did have a number of kids that I kind of carried out their in-home ABA programs with, you know, with the cards and, the, yeah. you know, all like the, you know, what's this and name that and do the puzzle and, and the that discrete trial thing. And, and so I just like, when it comes to neurodiversity affirming stuff, I feel like back then I was doing it and felt gross about it. And I'm so excited that it is now a wider communal gross feeling about well more than yeah. just gross that's not the best word but yeah yeah I just I feel like I've really seen the shift and I've been so relieved about it I I really um respect and applaud your honesty with that and your 
your humility to say like, hey, there was this thing that I did, I did. And this was, that was the best of the time. And I was excited about it. Mm-hmm. And now I'm excited that we're doing better. And I think a lot of people, you know, instead of acknowledging where they're coming from, they just kind of want to bury the past. So mm. that's real. That's mm-hmm. so real. Yeah. I appreciate you sharing that. So thanks. Yeah. I was listening to another one of your guys's podcasts, I think it was. And, um, Oh, was it with Bryden, I think, that you were talking about burying the past in OTA OTA or something? Yes. I was just listening to that because I, you know, I, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And um, yeah, I I think that's very real. I mean, at the time, like, I wanted to, you know, continue my work with autistic kids. And that was the only way it was done. And so that's what I did. Although I was also reading Greenspan's Engaging Autism and like, feeling better about the situations that were more like play-based and Mm -hmm. at the time. Um, But I also remember when I just decided unilaterally to remove those jobs from my resume, Mm -hmm. um, just because I was like, they don't, that's, if somebody that I'm looking to get a job with sees that and is happy about it, I don't want to get that job. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. 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 Um, I'm curious. I was like, there was a question I was going to ask. I'm like, let's not go there yet. So I'm going to, I'm going to reel that back in just for a second, not for for you, but just for our listeners, perhaps. No, maybe we'll get there. Um, so you started in kind of this realm of working with autistic children or autistic mm-hmm. young teams. Um, mm-hmm. What different settings have you been in and have you kind of stuck with autistic folks as mm. your focus? It was um, a mixture of autistic and um, a variety of other kind of developmental delays or differences or um, some people without diagnoses at all. And I'm fortunate that even from the very beginning, I had like supervisors who were always saying the diagnoses don't matter. We don't tell, we're not even going to tell you the diagnoses. And as a teen, I was like, can you please? Because I want to equip myself and be prepared. But now I understand that they were trying to make a point that it's the person in front of you. Hmm. Um, and I mean, yeah, there's, there's pluses and minuses and I see your face um, when I say that. And um, I, yeah, I've worked. So camps, after school programs, babysitting, um, uh, kind of like accompanying kids over the years to their OT or speech therapy sessions. Um, some like sports coach, um, I guess that was all before I became an OT. Um, oh yeah, like so you know, school and um, all. Yeah, it was more of the kind of mental and cognitive side, but a little bit of with kids with cerebral palsy, Down syndrome, and um, some more of the physical side of disabilities. I've always been more interested with in kids, and um, I did do a year of uh, part-time home health right out of OT school, which which was sweet in its own way too. Um, but yeah, then I worked mostly in an outpatient pediatric sensory clinic here in Portland um, for four years before I went to New Zealand. And then I, wor- I worked in um, like the national health system. So I worked in two different departments there. First was um, an in- indigenous uh, child and adolescent mental health service. Um, and the next one was um, I was practicing as what there is called a, a visiting neurodevelopmental therapist, which is only a term in New Zealand and it's a thing that PTs or OTs can be and 
it's kind of like akin to early intervention here. It's it's like part NICU follow up, um, so like lots of developmental monitoring from like you know birth to three, and then part um, just various delays in any area of development that kind of come through in that age range. But um, that was you know and that was a great learning experience for me because I had some wonderful like a really wonderful mentor who'd been working as a BNT for a while, but also because of the gamut of conditions and situations, like it was plenty of kids that were um, on a, the massive waiting list to be assessed for autism, you know, two and three-year-olds. And then um, I got to be a part of those assessments, which was really eye-opening and um, good, really good experience for me. And then, you know, to the child that has developmental trauma because they're kind of in lots of different placements and have experienced maybe abuse or neglect. so. Of course, their development is different or something like an isolated gross motor delay or, um, you know, a genetic condition or something at birth, you know, heart surgery at birth or something. So it was really a or like failure to thrive, a really wide variety from the physical motor stuff to the cognitive social play stuff, um, communication. So that was a lovely work experience for me. And now I'm trying to do my own practice. <laughs> yeah. Tell us more about your practice. Yeah. So um, it's it's a new thing for me, and it's called Bloom OT and Consulting. And that's because my middle name is Bluma. That's not a, a thing that most people know. They probably just see it and think it's, it's called Bloom. Yeah. That's nice for, like, the flower, which is also a reason. But, yeah, it has that meaning for me. Um, and in that I am seeing zero to three in home. So that kind of early intervention age. Um, and also um, just been collaborating with some local speech therapists and also like parent child playgroup leaders to do some, some workshops on like sensory processing, interoception, neurodivergent play, um, some parent education, and then some like um, hopefully soon also some like uh, preschool teacher education and just wider consulting to to the people that um, like are day in day out with the people with disabilities as opposed to the one-to-one -one, send them to me kind of thing. What kind of motivated you or inspired you to kind of go out on your own and take more of this consultative private practice realm? Um, mm -hmm. That's really my experience with my last job in New Zealand and seeing how useful it can be when I am just slightly less hands-on because of the large caseloads that we had, we were seeing kids once a month or even once every three months. Yeah. Um, a very rare circumstance would be every other week, but that was just one or two kids. Um, and I found that especially at those younger ages, that really helped support the parents to feel like, Oh, this is actually on me and mm -hmm. I can do this. And, you know, Ilana leaves me with these this plan and I know I'll see her again in a month. And in that time, we're going to do all these things as opposed to like, cool, see you next week. Oops, I didn't get a chance this week, but you'll yeah. see her soon anyway, kind of thing. Um, yeah. And in that role, I also got to do some education for like other other staff members within the, the hospital system and of other disciplines just around neurodivergence and sensory processing and um, some other things and, and that kind of, I felt more excited about that. And I felt like I was 
making more impact. And ultimately, I want to be empowering the people with the children, yeah. like, as opposed to them feeling like I, as the professional, am the only one that can help out here. Mm -hmm. So I really feel passionately about ungatekeeping some of our knowledge or some of my knowledge. Yeah. I, I love that term ungatekeeping because I feel like a lot of times us as professionals, like in grad school, depending on your professors and how they teach, but they tell you to kind of like hold your value almost. Mm -hmm. But just how you were explaining with New Zealand, how we're not the people there every day with the kids or with the individual themselves. So it's best to educate people that are with them and kind of give them tips and tricks on what's going to best serve the kids versus yeah. kind of us holding um, knowledge behind these hypothetical closed doors and stuff. Because even currently, I still work at a pediatric outpatient clinic too, on the side of our private practice. And just like how you were saying, you know, you have the parents that come in, they're like, oh, I didn't get to it. And I didn't get to that. Um, and it's hard to kind of say, hey, I only see your kid 45 minutes out of the entire <laughs> week. You're with them the entire rest of the week. And I'm more here to help you like engage with your kid in a more holistic way so that and just teach them different ways to kind of actually interact with their own kids so I love that yeah. kind of you're taking a big part and being this role of educating more on a community basis empowerment too mm -hmm. right I like to say yeah. um you know when I'm it's kind of part of my elevator speech but when I'm introducing my role to folks I often say, if I'm doing a good job, you're not going to need me. Mm -hmm. Like yeah. my role is to help empower you with knowledge and with skills and tools to think like an OT and to, to just be more um, satisfied and effective within your life. Mm -hmm. So I think that's interesting to compare and contrast kind of your model and what you explored in New Zealand of this very infrequent but powerful contact that you're having with mm -hmm. folks. Um, and comparing that to what is more of the commonplace in the U.S., where sometimes these kids are, you know, removed from more or less from their natural environment and are receiving support 40 hours a week from a professional. And to think about what that might do to the parents' um, sense of efficacy and, um, you know, ability to really be effective with their child, like they have to be removed from that environment and be supported elsewhere. So I think twofold, the fact that you come into the home and the fact that you come less free, less often, I think are both serve well to empower and support mm. instead of doing for, I guess. That's cool. Yeah. Thanks for that. Mm -hmm. I really like what you said about you won't need me kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, because, yeah, I don't, I mean, I have practiced in that way and I know what it's like. And I also know that it's motivated by bottom line, like insurance companies and the clinic needs to earn money and, and people kind of get into a sort of complacent inertia with it. Um, but, you know, I came into my, my first job in New Zealand kind of 
with still my same mindset of outpatient pediatric sensory clinic with all of the games and all of the toys, all of the swings, slides, climbing, all the things, and feeling like I've done this for years, I can do this. And then when I got there, and yeah, it was a, a more mental health a space, but we just had like two rooms with chairs and a little, like a table. And yeah, I could maybe find some markers and that was it. Like there, that was it, you know? And I was like, oh, how can I be a good OT without any of the equipment? And, you know, my perspective shifted and mm -hmm. I'm really glad for that. And then in my, in my other role there, you know, COVID was at a high and my mentor was saying, I don't go into anyone's house with anything um, ever just because of the germs. And ultimately I didn't really do, do that either unless it was something that I was prepared to leave with them, um, mm -hmm. you know, so they could use it. And it worked out fine. And I do feel like with the, with the hold my value versus like sharing the knowledge to think like an OT, I really do want to hold my value. And that's part of my work as a, a female and like, you know, practicing, holding the line, holding my value mm -hmm. and advocating for, you know, my knowledge and like not to do volunteer work, for example, mm -hmm. um, in this capitalist society. But also I think that there's ways to do both and you just have to kind of choose the families and be careful with, like some people do actually warrant more therapy and longer terms of it. And mm -hmm. that's fine, but just not doing that across the board. Mm -hmm. So I guess, yeah, just doing what people need, the just right amount so that I'm helping and I'm giving of myself and I'm not taking over all of the control and disempowering families. Um, but I'm also not just saying, here's your list of tips and tricks. Good luck. Yeah, right. <laughs> True. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Um, so going back to kind of that second part of the question Stephanie had asked originally, do you have like a quick elevator pitch or way that you describe occupational therapy or the type of occupational therapy you provide? Yeah. And I monitor it in real time based on yeah. the person's face who is listening to me or has asked. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. So I generally say it's a broad rehabilitation profession that helps people oftentimes with or after illness, injury or disability with daily life tasks and activities, um, things that they have to do or things that they feel like doing. Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful. That was one of our but, hardest assignments in grad school was to be concise and to be able to communicate that in a way that made sense regardless of your previous experience and, or, or your audience, right? And mm -hmm. I think you did a nice job with that. Thanks. <laughs> it's taken some years of, of crafting. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And it's fun as you get more specialized or more niche you can be a little more specific in your answer too right because it's like we can do all these things but i've kind of chosen to do this right yeah exactly yeah yeah how do you run neurodivergent voices podcast right so mm -hmm. and we've met over like various facebook groups and stuff yeah so how kind of do you identify yourself as neurodivergent or um, are you just like really passionate about the neurodivergent um, population? Kind of, can you give us a little bit more context behind it? Sure. I had actually forgotten that because I was getting so into this other stuff. <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, I am neurodivergent. 
I came to that realization like one year and one week ago. Oh, um, well, happy anniversary. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. yeah. Well, and by came to that realization, I mean, truly considered that I could be for the first time. Mm-hmm. For the 19 years before that, I had just been telling myself, of course not me, I'm much too social. Um, and yeah, it was um, it was on a climbing trip actually in a beautiful scenic place called Kawakawa Bay, um, overlooking looking Lake Topo, this really beautiful big lake. And I was about to start a climb, lead a lead climb with some of my close friends. And I was like, had my hands on the rock. And then I looked towards them and said, hey, do you think I could be neurodivergent? Mm-hmm. And they were like, um, go climb. We'll talk about it later. And I was like, no, but you know how I don't eat white and creamy foods and I don't like, you know, music and I don't like this and I do like that and how I say this and I do that. And they were like, okay, well, yeah, of course. Now go climb. <laughs> and I was like, I, that was a really meaningful moment because I felt both seen and also really vulnerable and also like mm-hmm. really affirmed like, oh, right, actually they knew that and it was still me and we're just still here climbing and nothing's changed. Mm-hmm. Wow. I like how your friends in that moment, you know, too, like you said, you they saw you in the moment and they kind of already knew per se and they're just like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah that's, you. that's you. That's you, go ahead. We've that's always you, we're you here to climb. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. Wow. <laughs> what do you think it was about that moment? Um, that's a good question. You know, I think, you know, I think I was thinking about, um, the particular sort of social norm of cheering people on and giving high fives and saying sort of colloquial supportive things to friends or peers when you're doing an activity together, because there was a few of us there at the crag and, I've learned and feel quite well-practiced and um, equipped with my cheering and high-fiving as I've always played sports. But I do remember that that took a while and I had that shivery, uncomfortable feeling for many years. Like, should I, should I shout now? Should I say, woo, like in a high-pitched voice? Or should I say like, yeah, person's name? Or should I stretch my hand out for a high-five? But what if they don't see it? I have to sort of do it low and, you know, but not too low. So I was thinking all of those things for a lot of years. And then I guess we were maybe supporting each other there. And I, I saw that my friend Jesse was just so easily like being supportive and it felt so good. And she seemed to just very naturally like say all of the right things at the right time. And after that climb, I asked her like, did you have to learn that? Like, or did that just sort of like come naturally to you or did you like think about how to cheer people on yeah as mm-hmm. one of the many things um and she said no it really came naturally and um you know when i said it didn't come naturally to me like it took a lot of work she was like yeah i can see that and again a non-issue mm-hmm. so yeah, yeah. wow that's a really good friend group that you found <laughs> that <laughs> it sure sounds like it yeah. Now, were these friends you met and made in New Zealand, or are they friends? Yeah. Okay. Actually, they're well. Um, yeah, they're there right now. Um, yeah. Do you still keep in contact with them? Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with the right kind of people to be spending time with. Mm-hmm. Totally. Wow. So, 
in the past year, in a week, in one day, mm-hmm. what have been, I'm sorry, this is a curveball. Are you okay with curveballs? Yes, totally. Okay, because okay. I'm like, I know, I like to be prepared and my thoughts and whatever. Um, what have been some shifts since you've had that realization? What have been some things that have been different in your life? Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I've, I've practiced saying it out loud to some people, but only the closest friends, really. Um, and then a few people, just as a, a little practice, like if I meet somebody like in a social gathering or something, and then I'll, I'll maybe say it or let it come up in some way and, and see how they respond just to sort of try it on. Mm-hmm. And that's felt pretty okay. And I've gotten, I've gotten affirmation from people. Oh, yes. The other thing I did was I made a, a Facebook post about it, which isn't something I do very often. I just said, hey, Facebook friends who have known me over the last long time, like, here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking I may be neurodivergent because of the various ex- examples here. I didn't go too, too deep or personal, but just a few things. Hey, what do you guys think? And I got all these responses. And the overwhelming sentiment was, yes. Mm-hmm. Like, actually, everyone said yes. And they were also a lot of people who shared, and I am too, and this is my di- mind process, and I only recently got diagnosed, or, um, you know, it takes one to know one, or I always thought you were one of us, things like that. <laughs> and after that, reading those Facebook comments, like, I you know, from people who have known me over various circumstances, I was kind of like, yep, I guess that confirms it. Um, So I have, it's been a lot of internal shifting, because of course, I have a lot of in like the internalized ableism, and you know, the things that were drilled into me as a child and a teen, like, you must conform. Is everybody else doing that? If not, then why are you doing it? Um, You're too sensitive, all of the things. yeah, so I was always, oh, you're you're always showing everything you're feeling on your face. You have to learn to stop that. It's not safe. Um, you know, just be more like everybody else. And um, yeah, lots of harmful messaging. Yeah. So when it comes to like some of my preferences and needs for movement and like body experiences, I've been doing my best to really think of them not as like, okay, well, I just need to do this quick thing and then I'll be able to get back to the the Mm -hmm. ideal state. But rather like, I need this thing and this is a a non-negotiable for me now. So I'm not gonna feel like, oh, I'm being a little bit weird, but that's okay if I like take my shirt off after a day of work, lie on the rug and just like roll around and scratch my back on the rug and Mm -hmm. feel it like, you know, a -hmm. deep scratch from the rug on my back and my shoulders and my arms. Mm -hmm. I'm just gonna be like, yeah, I'm doing this because like this is a thing I need and this yeah. is a thing I'm going to do and it feels good and is regulating and that's the end of the sentence mm. and there's no evaluative nature or judgment around it and um, same with yeah same with like I think work situations a lot being more comfortable trying to advocate like hey I prefer no music on or do you mind if we turn the lights off or Okay, at, at about the forty-minute mark, that's that's me for sitting in a chair. So yeah. you, I'm I'm still down to continue the conversation, but I'll be doing maybe some planks or mm-hmm. some like yoga stretches just here. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. Do you think since becoming kind of more self-aware 
of yourself in the past year and one week and one day. Um, You're in that, 76 days. Yeah. Do you think it's become easier to kind of give yourself the accommodations that are coming about in your daily life? Like you going on the floor with the carpet and stuff. Like, is it coming a little bit easier to recognize versus kind of that self ableism that kind of goes mm -hmm. on? Cause just experience as like a neurodivergent person myself, um, knowing I wasn't diagnosed late. I, you know, we knew very early on that I was different with my family and stuff. They're like, oh, clearly dyslexic, ADHD, all the, this, that, and the other. Um, and was kind of told not necessarily the most ableist things, but still like you got to suppress a lot of these things and kind of coming into more grad school and even after grad school times coming to realizations that like, Hey, no, I do have accommodations that I can give myself and that's okay. I don't need to kind of suppress anything. Like I can say to myself, I'm going to listen to audiobooks and that's actually reading still mm -hmm. that I really do enjoy those things. So I don't know if there's other things besides kind of the carpet stuff or how easily it mm -hmm. comes to you now to kind of give yourself those accommodations. Mm. Well, before I recognize my own neurodivergence, um, as an OT, I recognized like the things that I had needed to be doing with my body my whole life as my sensory processing needs. Yeah. Sort of like being upside down. I was into gymnastics, really into it as a younger kid. And um, I was always doing headstands and handstands and Still now, I make sure to be upside down like multiple times daily, um, like, you know, stretching my back in a certain way. I got into weightlifting about six years ago. Um, so I see that as like, you know, my need for proprioceptive yeah. input and getting my heart rate high enough so that I can feel it is, is pretty mm -hmm. grounding. Um, yeah, playing a lot of ultimate frisbee. Oh, I can't believe I didn't mention that. It's an important <laughs> occupation of mine. Yeah, cardio and social needs. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, so... I think I've always I've always known them and I've always strived to meet the needs that I have, but it's more of the framing around it or the sort of um, like self-critical lens that has seen it more in the past as like, oh, well, it's too bad that I need this, but I guess I just will do it now as like, this is me. And like, you know, I have to, I mean, of course, I've been working on my like self-compassion and self-allyship just mm -hmm. overall in life. And so that's part and parcel of this. And also thinking about the people I spend time with because I have a lot of food particularities, like lots of things that I don't eat and I don't want to eat. And there have been lots of periods in my life, you know, when I've been encouraged to eat more and, and eat different things, drink milk, like as a kid. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, in my twenties, I was, you know, I had, I had good friends that would often joke around with me or they thought it was joking for me it felt like pretty invalidating and almost dehumanizing like oh you're such a picky eater oh yeah you never eat anything you know and I I was kind of like I'm not a picky eater I just doesn't everyone have foods they like and don't like and right turns out lots of adults just eat about everything and you know I still have I mean I've eaten a lot more over my adulthood than when I was a child but I still have a you know, I still have my no list and mm -hmm. I stand by it. And so now when I can, um, you know, living in a, a pretty like 
progressive space like Portland, people are very into, you know, respecting each other's dietary and food preferences. And I find that it feels so affirming and, and good to be around somebody who is interested in knowing the foods that I don't eat so that they can keep that in mind when we share food together, as opposed to making a comment like, wow, you don't eat that. Oh my God, you're missing out. Or you have to try this or wow, yeah. you're such a picky yeah. eater. You know, those comments. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's so many different things that you mentioned that I'm like, but my gears just, I always do this. My gears just started spinning on and I just want to dive into all of them. Um, but of course my working memory doesn't work well enough to remember all of them, <laughs> but I want to touch more on, I'm saying these out loud so I don't forget it. I want to touch more on the food thing. Um, and I also want to talk about your environment because I just had this total aha moment in, in my head, not to make this about me, but I'm just now realizing. So Portland's tagline, or at least it was when I went in 2010 yeah. or whatever is keep Portland weird. Right. There's just like yeah. this environment and, and this, um, just like communal embracingness of what is like so clearly neurodivergence, which I never even thought of, but I went there as a, um, a senior in high school. And I just remember feeling like I like came home or something. Like it was just the space in which like everyone could just be who they were in a way that I had never experienced before. And it really opened my eyes to like, Oh, I'm not, I'm not just like quirky and weird and whatever. I'm just me. And that's fine. Like, mm. so really powerful experience I had in Portland. And I think it, um, your environment and the way in which others treat one another and treat themselves really has so much to do with like how accepted and progressive we can be with just difference in general, but especially neurodivergence, which kind of like wants me to pull back to the um, this whole topic of New Zealand too and the, the contrastingness, the comparing and contrasting mm-hmm. because I think the environment um really does make such a big difference in our ability to unmask and embrace our true selves um, and and see and appreciate and accommodate mm-hmm. neurodivergence yeah so um I know that we've already hit 43 minutes and you're you know probably need to get some rope <laughs> and vestibular input and squirming and stuff too um so if at any point you're like want to do some planks handstands do what you got to do okay we are 100% supported and if you got to go that's good too thanks so. I'm good I mean it's okay. just a snow day here so yeah oh same I want to see you across the bay mm-hmm. um so what were some of the major differences you saw um in New Zealand around neurodiversity mm, yeah that's it I'm glad that you're um honing it into that because I was like oh no the healthcare system at large is such a big conversation yeah um yeah. but neurodiversity specifically um so I was so stoked at how the you know powers that be there like the national health system the the literature they put out the courses mm-hmm. they recommend um they're you know like our guide to autism kind of thing the diagnostic process, the people who do the diagnoses, at least within the service I worked at, which was in Wellington, um, part of Wellington Hospital, the Children's Hospital, um, was so neurodiversity affirming and way more than I have experienced from kind of um, 
those types of, of levels here. So not to individual therapists I've worked with, but more like diagnosing professionals or medical doctors or literature put out or official recommendations from, for example, insurance companies. Mm-hmm. Um, so ABA is, it exists in New Zealand, but it's very minor and it's the exception as opposed to here. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there even are any ABA providers in Wellington. They're not that I encountered and that's the capital city. Um, I did have a family reach out to me specifically to ask, say they were interested in ABA and ask my opinion on it um, because they were thinking of traveling to another city, which would have been a a flight um, to get that for their child. And I, I gave them my clear opinion, which was no, and here's why, and I've experienced both. And, you know, it will be like a night and day from what we've been doing together. And I'm thinking about the child's overall well-being, like, and connectedness for their whole life, not just whether they're demonstrating a particular skill right now. So that's what I mean when I say this. And the parents received the message and I was happy. Um, So yeah, the Ministry of Education, they have ministries there, like departments. The Ministry of Education and the Ministry of Health, the things that they put out are like very in line with DIR, um, floor time. neurodiversity affirming ideals are like talked about actively within the space and within the child development service which is where i work which is the service that provides like you know the the one that provides the diagnoses and um it's you know it's free because the whole health system is free but it's also you know very like there's so much need and there's like it's not unusual for there to be a 12 to 15 month wait for an assessment, which is a really long time. Um, so I was able to be a part of um, any of the kids that I saw that were having their assessment. So I was able to be a part of their kind of assessment process. So I didn't do like, I didn't do the ADOS, but I sat in on the, the parent interviews and, you know, sort of supplied my, my insights and supported, kind of supported the families, but also like gave what I saw because I had been the one going in the home for the last while um, and kind of doing the work. So essentially like doing floor time style, um, Mm -hmm. my own really, my own style. And, and then part of that feedback meeting afterwards where they would be given the diagnoses and, and said, you know, and there was always like tears and conversations and it was a really hard thing. Um, But the way that it was talked about was, really like quite respectful, quite strengths-based to the point where actually sometimes, you know, some of the reports that were written were like, wait, so if they're doing all these things, why do they have this diagnosis? Because the reports are just saying what they are doing and not what they're not doing. Um, And the one thing though, there was some discrepancy before I, you know, toot their horn so much, like, some of the funding that the families, you know, if they have an autism diagnosis are eligible to apply for is from, is I don't know, it has this kind of somewhat upsetting name for some of the parents, like the disabled child's allocation or something, some money mm-hmm. they're eligible to get. Um, and I had some families that were like, the whole process of working with me and working with the diagnosis team and the assessment and the, the service was 
so affirming that that one form that said on it, you know, had the stamp of disabled children, something yeah. or other, they were like, I can't bring myself to fill that out. It just, I'm not ready yet. It's too, like, it's too final. It's too, like, I don't think of them as being disabled, you know, like, and yeah. I was like, I get it. But also that's kind of too bad because then you're not getting that money that could be useful. Um, mm. So, yeah, I mean, there's a ways to go, but um I was really happy with, with what I saw. You know, um, it kind of makes me think about this, I don't know, this contrasting dialogue that we see a lot like in the neurodiverse community about really embracing strengths almost to the point of superpower. And mm. then really also on the opposite end, looking more at you know, internal disability cures, things like that. And I think it's it's kind of this really wide spectrum where it sounds like um, New Zealand maybe is closer to the end of strength-based, almost superpower, where we are still in the U.S. a little bit more so on that end of fixing and really identifying um, the disability within. And so you know, we kind of try and like strike this balance, I think, um, of how can we acknowledge the disability that exists because of mm -hmm. the combination of the individual and their environment and the presence or absence of supports, but also acknowledge and really emphasize the strengths that are inherent to every human, right? And so that's something that we struggle with, like within our documentation, like we're in the system that reimburses based on remediated deficits. Yeah. But we are trying to practice in an affirming way that appreciates and and brings to uh, brings to light strengths that children and adults maybe were never even aware of or never never mm -hmm. sought to have. So like how do we communicate within a system that's not there yet, right? I don't know. Just just thoughts, but yeah. I had those thoughts at the beginning of my time there also, because I was pretty entrenched in the, you know, I want to say positives, but also we have to justify our presence as therapists, right? And if we're just saying positives, then why are we even there? Right. Um, and my mentor, Michelle, in, in my role there with the young ones, kind of enlightened me to this way that, um, of course, it's there they don't have any insurance companies to answer back to but there are other professionals doctors neurologists whatever that see the the treatment notes and the reports that we write as therapists and she was saying that part of writing in a strengths-based way is not just for for our frames and for the parents you know well-being and just to, to change the culture but also it's giving credit to the reader so if i'm saying that this two-year-old is communicating um you know communicates with vocalizations and maybe, you know, vocalizations with three consonants and often walks over to the item that they want, then I don't need to say using hand as tool or not speaking any words or, you know, making unusual noises okay. because it's giving the whoever the reader is credit that they would know that that is atypical and that they can act accordingly or keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. So, um, that was something that I hadn't really thought of before, 
And of course, with us, we, I mean, I wouldn't trust whatever random reader at some for-profit health insurance company to read developmental specifics of a child and be able to Mm -hmm. tease out what is normal and what is not, quote unquote. Um, So that's a bit, that's a different thing. Yeah. Um, But yeah, giving credit to the reader. That was the point. Yeah. It's funny how you were phrasing that because I recently had a discussion with some students, uh, OT students and stuff, because I'm um, the Michigan coordinator for some OT students and stuff and talking about more writing down what a child is actually doing, not necessarily saying it's a deficit, but for insurance purposes, specifically saying, you know, they are performing these tasks, but the typical age equivalent would be this. And I was like, and it's only because usually the people reading, frankly, for insurance purposes, are don't know the age norms of what's going. I was like, but you can also tell the parents, like, this is what we are writing about is what the child is actually doing or what the individual is actually doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I was like, so you just, you have that little bit for like, what is quote unquote typical or in the um, age bracket for the insurance, but like, but that's the last part of your sentence yeah. just to get the context for the insurance company. Like, but the rest of it should all be written as what you're observing is happening. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess that can work a little bit better when we think about like, developmental milestones that kids get at certain ages and points and it's sort of a down to up thing but when it comes to neurodivergent ways of being that's a bit more lateral exactly. because yeah, it's yeah. not like oh well they're three but two-year-olds do this because two-year-olds don't do this neurodivergent mm-hmm. people do this right. so yeah exactly I'm not I'm not in the space of working with children or within developmental norms but I, I'm just throwing this out there part of my ignorance but are there different milestones or are there like resources for um, acknowledging different milestones for neurodivergent children? There's no good ones yet, but there is new research, I think in Sweden that is creating like an actual more time frame of when to expect certain types of things, but it's based off of specific levels of autism and stuff yeah. and like not necessarily the full spectrum or different types of neurodivergence and stuff but mm. there is newer research starting of course not in the U.S. because <laughs> we don't get most yeah. of our <laughs> research from the U.S. frankly um but yeah nothing that's like been super published more like in the getting research data stage and it's Again, I'm asking this because I don't have the experience, but it's normal, quote unquote, normal to not hit milestones, right? To just skip over them as part of being a neurodivergent individual too, or to have different milestones. Is that is that true? Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I'm. Th- I was thinking more about like the maybe like zero to three kind of milestones that can be a bit like when it gets older than that it kind of it goes from like steps on a ladder to more like branches in a tree and lots of little Mm -hmm. twigs um because when it comes to play and cognition there's so much more going on um but yeah i think what you're saying is true because you know they might never do something and might do lots of other things or yeah i think you're right and i don't think there is um 
you know, I don't think there is a, like you said, I don't think there is, you know, a neurodivergent milestone chart. And I almost don't know if there should be, because then that's saying that all like autistic people, for example, would be the same. And also there's the thing about autism co-occurring with, you know, what we, what we know as intellectual disability, um, which can then look even a whole other way or many other ways. Yeah. So, yeah. Hmm. Interesting. Agreed. Because especially like even just thinking about the research that's currently being done, I was like, okay, but how do you, how do you measure quote unquote this? Because it's such a diversity with all of our different brains. How, how would you say what is actually within the quote unquote norm for neurodivergence? Right. Especially right. <laughs> like, yeah, it's kind of antithetical. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Or hypocritical. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It kind of like is an oxymoron. Mm-hmm. Way, so, mm-hmm. yeah. Anyway, I like to concern myself less with like, you know, matching up charts and measurements, mm-hmm. but more with like the, the experiences and the feelings and the yeah. like, you know, satisfaction of the people that I'm with. Yes, 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 yes. Uh, absolutely. Snap, 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 snap. Yes, yeah. I, I can't <laughs> snap, so it's just my pretending to snap. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, in what ways do you feel like occupational therapy in the United States um, can and should evolve to better support neurodivergent individuals? Well, um, I was thinking about that one, and occupational therapy is is a broad term and in some ways in a lot of ways it's kind of limited by like society itself because as long as you know we're functioning within you know health systems reimbursement structures there are limitations but i kind of want to just maybe highlight from my own experience i think ot programs are a really um, pivotal place that based on my experience can improve a great deal um I went to school in 2012 to 2014, so a little bit ago. Um, I'm sure things have changed, I really hope. But as somebody who has, you know, never been a chair sitter in her life, um, you know, going back to school a few years after undergrad, that was one of my big fears of like, oh my God, I'm gonna have to sit still, you know, in a fluorescently lit room in a chair at a table for many hours and look, in certain ways say certain things appear on in certain ways um and that's a lot and so i kind of took some liberties in like standing and stretching a bit during some of those courses and i was shot down by those professors i was taken in for professional behavior you know discussions yeah absolutely and i was really floored about that because i was thinking like here we are becoming occupational therapists. This isn't, you know, we're not in a business school here. Mm -hmm. Um, Like this is an adult place with adults and like I'm doing my best to tend to my body so that I can like attend to the courses Mm -hmm. um, so that I can, you know, complete the hoops to become an OT. Mm -hmm. And that was very unsettling. Mm -hmm. And frankly, there was bullying. Like there were teachers that told me during some of our practicals, you know, when I would do the do the home safety assessment and, um, you know, talk to, you know, have one one peer pretend to be like the the person who lives in the home, the older adult, yeah. for example. Mm-hmm. And I 
I won't forget this. The feedback I got from my professor was she said, you are an over-explainer and you are going to be one of those OTs that never succeeds because of your over-explaining. And, you know, that happened somewhere, I think it was 2013. Mm-hmm. It was upsetting, but it didn't break me because I already knew I am going to be a wonderful OT and this is my line of work. And indeed I am and I have been. Mm-hmm. And I have a lot of people that could attest to that. But it's a real shame that people like that are in OT programs. And mm-hmm. it also kind of makes sense to, made sense to me and my peers who many of them also got called in for their professional behavior. Um just because we're kind of like being humans. Um, right. And uh, we kind of realized, okay, who are the OTs that are working in the ivory tower here? Mm-hmm. Not the ones who we're going to be working with, not the ones who actually want to be OTs because they're professors now and mm-hmm. like espousing yeah. this mm-hmm. kind of, um, you know, going on power trips and stuff. And there were exceptions. There were some lovely professors but it's a real shame that like, I'm not talking about like the seventies or something. This is recent and um, that was my experience and I have peers that have similar experiences. So Mm. to any OT school um, teachers or staff members out there, you know, hopefully you'll hear this and think about what goes on and, you know, recognize that the guise of professional behavior is one that is of privilege Mm -hmm. and um, it's, you know, I would much rather if a teacher felt a certain feeling in response to something that I did with my body, that they told me, seeing you do X, I felt Y rather than what they did that I can engage with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Man. I mean, (laughs) so we were in grad school together, which is how we met and Mm -hmm you know, graduated in 2019. So for you, yeah, I have another caveat for that. Oh, yeah, we'll we'll get into it. (laughs) But even, uh, you know, as soon as as recent as five years ago, neurodiversity affirming was not a a term we ever once heard. Um, We had a very, very, very brief uh, stint, if you will, on developmental disabilities at all. I think autism Mm -hmm. was like, 15 minutes of a single lecture. Um, But I think the more, the bigger, truer, like neurodiversity affirming shift that needs to happen within our school systems is accommodating and accepting the diversity within their own students Mm -hmm. and within ourselves. Because if we can't appreciate and accommodate ourselves, how on earth are we supposed to advocate for our clients, right? Yeah. And I know you have a very personal, I don't know if you want to share it or yeah, not. Yeah, I'll but. share it. Um, so why, the caveat was that I kind of like mentioned is there was a, I graduated in 2020, of course, mm-hmm. like end of the pandemic because of one final exam. It was worth like 30% of our grade um, and it had to be done um, orally. So I have written accommodations and stuff for my dyslexia and ADHD that frankly didn't really have to use. I used in grade school, but didn't have to use till grad school. Um, and kind of openly said, uh, word finding is really hard for me. You're giving me a timeline to kind of give this case study, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which we get the case study 24 hours in advance, which I'm like, I'll have a whole binder of everything of like all my treatment plans, everything I'm gonna do. It's all, everything that's in my brain is here, um, but you're, 
physically asking me to do it orally. And I don't know if that's going to be possible. Um, kind of like giving the caveat beforehand. And I did not pass that class because of one point missed from that entire exam. So I missed it by a single point. Um, and kind of like talking to professors and stuff saying like, we're talking about getting accommodations for people. Yet you're not going to do it for your own students, even though you see mm-hmm. the written work, like you, you know that I'm not um, making up what's going on in my brain, you know, like I just literally can't word find for 15 minutes, you know, it's, it's not there, mm-hmm. it's not going to be there. Um, sure enough, I had to take the same class over again, the next year, uh, still kind of struggled orally, but if it wasn't for another professor saying, she literally has it. <laughs> literally, it's right. It's right here. Yes, Amy Lamb. She actually used to be one of the AOTA presidents. Mm. Um, oh yeah, I think I've seen the name. Mm-hmm. Um, but literally, kind of advocating for me because even though I had friends, you know, in the program and stuff, I had written accommodations. It didn't matter because they're like, "Oh, we're gonna have to present to families and stuff." I was like, "Okay, but I'll have like cheat sheets." in front of me, we'll talk over email, like, I'll, mm. we'll, t- we'll have a collaborative experience. I'm not trying to info dump an entire person's life that I've never met in 15 minutes right. like, you know, with context behind it. So yeah, just not even having the, for their own students and having already built accommodations in for it that they know that they can advocate for themselves. Um, that they can't teach it to some other, you know, on some other capacity, which is just kind of hard in that aspect. But even oh. if it was just my own experience, we had a couple, not to kind of get into much other tangents, but we had other, um, like, teachers make comments about people not wearing makeup and things like that. Oh. Like, <laughs> you know, just straight up came in and had a whole 15-minute tangent on, like, how so unprofessional it is that we're in class and we're not wearing makeup in a class where we're learning about, I don't know, transfers and stuff all day. Like, where we're not physically. Oh, my learning. God. And, and so that is that, disgusting. And that's, you know, end of 2020. Like, I was in my field work. So that was kind of maybe a little bit 2019. But not that like that was five years ago. Yeah. yeah. Why is five years ago? And like how you mentioned, you know, for 2013. But it's, it's not like these experiences are so Mm -hmm. in the past and for being a profession that's about like trying to adapt and find how can we like work with the environment or get the best fit to be able to do the thing you want to do I was just like isn't that the whole point of our profession yeah so many opportunities that were missed there I mean it's I I lived this with you Stephanie and so like Every time I even think about it, my blood just absolutely boils to think about how you were failed. Also, I need to move this. It keeps on making noise. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's such a big, like, underlying drive for both of us is, like, we don't want people to be wronged in that way, right? Here's yeah. this person who's, like, Stephanie's, no, I'm sorry, I'm just the all offensive. It makes me so angry. But, like, Stephanie has lived and breathed activation therapy since she was... A little kid right she was the one that like everyone would not cheat off of but like want support with because she understood and loved and breathed occupational therapy and for her 
to get to that point where she was passing and there was no concern and then to be expected to fit this very narrow expectation for what passing for what an effective therapist could look like derail that is just so against all the roots of what OT should be Mm -hmm. and especially neurodiversity affirming so it's like listen we are never god god will (laughs) we are never going to allow folks that we come in contact with to be failed in that way Mm -hmm. um and so i think that's been a a big big driver for both of us Mm -hmm. um but yeah seeing it Mm. on a professional level because even with you in new zealand kind of writing goals so that the professionals that are quote unquote above you that are reading it um can have a better understanding of neuro divergence and neurodivergent affirming practices. It's hard when a field that was kind of grown to kind of help accommodate specifically, like, cause we knew something was not working um, and being mental health based and being okay. It's doing stuff that people are used to doing and love in their own occupation. How did we kind of come so far <laughs> that we're teaching yeah. these things that are so medical model? So I love that you bring the school system yeah. kind of into it because it really starts in the school. Yeah. No, before early before. intervention, zero to three. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you're really you are setting <laughs> you're setting the tone for these folks' whole life, which I think you had said before, which is so true. Um, yeah. And you know, we are we are kind of working with the adults who unfortunately are kind of the aftermath of all of the the trauma and all of the 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 scripts and preconceived notions that they have been fed their whole lives and we're like we're trying to undo a lot of that internalized ableism um but the opportunity to get in there and write a fresh narrative for them is so mm-hmm. hopeful i think and so i think that the work that you are doing other neurodiversity affirming um pediatric therapists is just so invaluable for the future of neurodivergence as a culture you know i mean really so yeah thank you Thank you for letting us do that tangent. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you for sharing. Mm -hmm. Thank you for sharing that story. I, it kind of brought me right. I could see myself in the classrooms and, Mm. you know, it's just really a shame. And um, I don't know who has to, you know, I mean, not who has to hear this because nobody will change if they don't want to from within, but um, there's some harm. There's some harm being done. You can look at like the OT subreddit and read people's stories and, you know, it's pretty basic, but we should be showing over telling, you know? Uh, Yeah. And if we can't like show and model what our profession stands for, like maybe we shouldn't be in it at all. Yeah. Yeah. True. True. I think the potential at its core for occupational therapy is one that is just unlike anything else. The practice and getting to like living and breathing and practicing what it can be though is it's I think there's quite a gap there. Yeah. Yeah. Oh <laughs> thank you so much. This was such a like I'm feel like we could have talked for 15 more hours and yeah. I don't have that often that I like to keep social interaction short and succinct but like when there's just so many things that mm-hmm. that make you question things and consider things it's just yeah very fun so thank I'm you I'm so glad I'm glad that like I don't know I guess I think thinking that you two like graduated um more recently I'm like oh I'm excited for the the next generation not that it's really a generation but yeah. you know yeah right mm-hmm. yeah it's cool it's nice to know like that there are colleagues out there around that 
you know, all the Facebook groups are one thing, but that's just the written word, you know, but actually okay. having a conversation is like, it's special. Thank you. Lovely. Well, thank you so much. And hopefully this is just like the first time that we interact and we can keep in touch and it's, it's a small community and to make that face yeah. is really impactful and powerful. So yeah, hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll be sure to, if there's people that reach out asking for, services in Portland, Oregon to kind of shoot them your way to Bloom. Totally. Send them my way. Bloom OT and consulting, you said? Huh? Oh yeah. Bloom occupational therapy and consulting. And although I am aiming at zero to three, honestly, anyone is fine. I'm happy to chat with anyone really, since I'm just starting out with this practice. Well, wonderful. We are not licensed in Oregon. So anyone we get in the Oregon area, we will send your way. (laughs) Yeah, we get a lot of parents too, where they're just like, hey, you know, I just want to know how to be a better parent myself and kind of self-identifying. So we'll definitely send them your way. Yeah. And you can let me know if you're ever in Portland. We can meet up. We can keep it weird together. I love it. Yes. (laughs) Keep it that way. Yeah, for sure. All right. So this is um, really my first time saying I'm not neurodivergent within the OT space at all. I've only ever shared it with friends. So well, this um, is a big day for you then. Yeah. You sharing that with us. We're it is a big thing. We're part of that. This is yeah. a yeah, that's part of your journey. So that is. Yeah. I'm coming out. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm so excited and selfishly to be a part of your coming out journey yeah. for this. <laughs> but congrats. Thanks. Yeah, definitely um, do some extra upside down yoga poses. Uh-huh. Yeah. Kind of nature. I don't yeah. know. I like to be out in the snow. I'd like the, the you know, giving mm-hmm. touch with it. Whatever yeah. you We'll need. probably go walk my horse real quick just to like, you know, do all that stuff. So she drops cool. it. Walk my horse. Like everyone has horses around. Oh, here. oh, I thought you said walk in the forest. Oh, you walk uh, your horse. I do, okay. I do have that little, but there's a mini horse in the back. Um, But yeah, just kind of do what you need to do. Mm-hmm. I know that's what we're going to do. Thank so. you. Take care of yourself. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. All right. Well, take care. Okay. Nice to meet you. Thank you. That's right. That's my name. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Neurodivergent Voices. Interested in an interview? Email divergecs at gmail.com to get it scheduled.